0: I think what gives me the most hope of all is that the sense that people are finally waking up, you know, individuals, businesses, corporations, governments, and we're seeing evidence of people making positive changes and saying, nope, we're not going to have this. You know, we're going to, we're going to change things. And that inspires me and, and gives me a lot of hope. Hello and
1: welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. So it's so hidden by the negative noise in our media that I'm calling that wave a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world. And on this podcast, we'll introduce you to the people making it that way. If you are tuning up the negative news more and more these days, this podcast can be your touchstone the place where you get some connection to progress and remarkable inspiration, and you'll learn about countless ingenious people who are improving our shared futures right now. We have to know about the good news so that we can think better and have better ideas ourselves in our circles at work and in our family. So thank you for joining us at the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Today's guest is Liz McKenzie. She's an award-winning filmmaker, writer, editor, and an expert on giving others access to the wonder and joy in nature all around us. And I do mean all around us. What we've forgotten to listen to, what we are stepping over half the time. We don't have to take a vacation to some far-off wild place to experience the awe from which we've come. Liz McKenzie's vision her eye for sharing the extraordinary is just lovely. Her films and articles focus on nature and science and traditional ecology knowledge in Alaska. And gosh, you know her work has taken her all over the world. She's passionate about telling unique stories about the natural world. And a recent documentary that she's done called "The Singing Planet." Oh, it turned me upside down. I literally can't walk outside without. A big smile appearing my face because I'm noticing so much more right there to bring me joy. So, Liz, thank you for joining us on the podcast. You're all over the place. You've worked from the Arctic to Tasmania and you've been on the fishing boats of Alaska in the salmon streams with brown bears. This is, I feel like it's a little miracle that you're joining us all wherever we are. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me here, Linda. And I I have to say I'm a huge fan of all of the work that you're doing and all the good that you're doing in the world. So for me, it's it's a real treat and honor to be here.
1: Well, okay. So let's dive right in so we can share some of this wonder that I'm smiling so broadly about. Just be honest, Liz and I have spent some time together kind of imagining what was possible from this interview because she's she's involved in so many things we wanted to squeeze all that we could into this hour together and i'm just going to start right out with a with an observation about this beautiful documentary called the singing planet and that name the name of a film is something that you'll learn more and more about as we get through this interview but the narrator early on in this gorgeous film says this he says it says, if we've lost the ability to hear our greatest philosophers, our greatest teachers, scientists, and wisdom bearers. I right know what he's referring to is this, this voice of the earth concept. So turn us on to what's going on with this, and that's a good place for us to start.
0: Well, the film follows two natural sounds recorders, Richard Nelson, who spoke those words in the beginning of the film and Hank Lemfer, and it, it follows their recordings of natural sounds in Glacier Bay, National Park. Bears and glaciers and whales and bees and, you know, everything in between, really focusing on listening to the natural world. And this is something that humans have done for all of human history. I've been very acutely aware of the sounds around them. It's only in recent times that it's as if we've forgotten to listen to them and and there's a lot of of competition for sharing the natural world. There's a lot of human made sounds, but even when we're in places like our maybe our neighborhood, our own backyard, you know are we listening? Do we know who these other voices are and once we start to listen to these natural voices, it just expands and enriches our world and One of the things that I love is that as you've talked about, Linda, about going outside and and now you're hearing more and you're hearing your neighbors, not just your human neighbors, but you're hearing maybe a robin singing or a hummingbird or the wind in the branches. And you're really aware of that. And so it just incredibly enriches our lives to be listening for these natural voices as, as well as all the other sounds that are out there.
1: Well, I think it's a part of something that, that I came across. The person that introduced us thought that you would expand our way of thinking about the deficit of nature that we have in our lives. This fellow is quite a nature lover. And he he was very expansive about it. He, he was calling it <laughs> that we're all suffering from nature deficit disorder. And so talk to us about the wonder that we that's right there accessible to us right off if we're listening to nature.
0: Well, we need time in nature as much as we need food or water and other resources. We need that time to feed our senses, to feed our spirits, and you know, and not just for our eyes, which is what we typically focus on, but also our sense of smell and touch and taste and our hearing. And I think Maybe more than ever we need that in our world because there's so much competing for our attention. There was a lot of big things happening in the world. And there's also this idea of, you know, mindfulness and meditation and all that's been around forever, but it, you know, it's kind of having a resurgence, I guess, and this idea of coming into the present moment. And I don't know anything better than nature to bring you right into the present because all your senses are open and, you know, just taking that pause and listening to the birds singing or water noises that we're being alive again, I guess, right, right in the present moment. And it doesn't have to be some grand wild place you don't have to go to a national park. You can seek out a city park, or a green space or a county park or, you know, maybe even your own backyard. One of the things that I really like to talk to people about is, you know, how can you create some kind of a little nature oasis and experience for you wherever you live? And if you have a backyard, you can plant native species, <laughs> and you can attract all kinds of pollinators bees and butterflies and other beneficial insects and birds and squirrels and chipmunks and all of that. And I I think of a, a film that I saw recently. It was called "Wild in the Garden State," and it's a couple, David and Sarah. Galloway, who lived in New York, right, you know, smack downtown New York, and they had an apartment. They moved to New Jersey, and what they had was just basically a grass lawn. And, but they wanted to have something, you know, something more natural, and they checked to make sure there weren't ordinances to say that they had to have a lawn. And over a number of years, they transformed this grass into a beautiful biodiverse garden by planting native plants and so they had everything including monarch butterflies and nesting songbirds coming to their yard so they went from this basically what was kind of a sterile environment a lawn that needed chemical treatments and a lot of water to keep it beautiful and green into this this beautiful biodiverse garden, a, a habitat for all kinds of plants and animals, and I think we're going to see more of this as we go on, and and especially gardens that don't require a lot of water or chemicals. But you know, anybody can do this. If you have a little patch of lawn, you can do that, and if you live in a neighborhood that possibly has a, a vacant lot that could be turned into a green space and maybe you could get it donated for that or fundraise for that to turn it into a green space. And one of the favorite things that I read recently was about this movement and across the UK and Europe. It's called the parklet movement, where people are taking unused parking spaces. So, you know, you may live in a, a place where you have a parking spot that's yours. You don't have a car. And so what they're turning those into are these tiny urban green spaces, you know, gardens on a cart or boxes, box gardens, whatever the city council ordinances allow. And so they're rewilding on a really small scale. But imagine that. Extrapolating out to thousands of people doing us over time.
1: This is something that you can do on a patio if you live on the seventh floor. I mean, all these little small moves. You know, nature is big as a brown bear, or it, it's as small as a honeybee. And I think what you're telling us is that that space is not the limitation. It's really it's really imagination that's your only limitation
0: imagination that's that's really beautifully put and as as you saw you know even like a crack in the sidewalk or something growing out of that you know nature is always trying to be there for us and we have to make room for it and, and use our imaginations absolutely when i lived in miami i was you know it was a very urban area there were some palm trees around you know because it was miami but all i had was a balcony and a lot of concrete around me but i had a bird feeder on my balcony and Course you have to be careful, you know, birds want to run it into glass or anything, but I had regular visitors to my bird feeder and it just made all the difference for me being a nature lover in this urban area to have those birds come visit.
1: Yeah. An episode or two ago, we talked to Blaine Merker, and he is the one who started the parklet movement. Yes, yes. It's funny that you should mention that. Yeah, (laughs) he's an urban designer and Before he started working for this giant international corporation called Gell, he was part of the group who just rented the parking space for two hours and they brought in all this stuff and then they, they completely created a little parklet and then they just watched what happened there for two hours. And yeah, people did take advantage of those little islands of nature in beautiful ways. And then, of course, things took off from there and now they're redoing places in huge, huge expanses of Boston and Chicago and Copenhagen and et cetera, et cetera. But every great idea starts with something small, Mm -hmm. you know, and quiet, very often rather quiet. That's what I loved about The Singing Planet. It's one of those, those lovely nature films that you can just get a favorite beverage, get in your comfy clothes, just get in the right state of mind to just let this all soak in. Because when you're done, it, it's like the world all around you has changed. I, I am interested in nature as well, but i kind of an amateur bird nerd. But now, I, ever since i met you, I sit on my deck every day, little pair of binoculars. And now I feel like I know personally the wren and a few particular gross beaks that visit all the time. <laughs> and there's one hummingbird that comes right up to me. As long as I don't think about reaching for my phone, she'll stay there. But the minute I do think about reaching for my phone, off she goes. That, that's a funny thing that you talked to me about the other day. We might as well skip there since we're so close. Talk to us about what you've <laughs> noticed in nature about our intentions, how animals seem to understand our intentions.
0: Well- It's something that I have come across so many times as a filmmaker out in nature that I've come to believe that these animals can sense our intentions. So I'll tell you a couple of stories from filming. In The Singing Planet, there are two sibling bears that that you'll see if if you watch the film. And we arrived in a skiff, there were three of us, myself and Hank and, Nelson, and and there was a stream and there were two sibling bears, probably a couple of years old, that were feeding on um, the salmon. And we didn't want to come into the beach because we were afraid we'd scare the bears away. And so at one point, Hank puts out one of those plastic milk crates into the water. And I stand on that. My tripod's in the water. I'm trying to film the bears. And the bears walked off. They walked back up the beach and into the forest. So when we got out and we'll walk, walk along the stream, we're looking at all those salmon carcasses because you know, there was a lot of salmon running <laughs> These are well fed bears and they high grade like crazy. They eat the brains and the belly and then they'll go on to the next, the next fish. So we're just looking at all that and all the paw, paw prints. And then the bears came back fully aware that we were there and they let us stay with them. Oh, at least an hour filming and there was just a tiny little stream it was low tide at this point so the stream was small and very shallow they could have easily have crossed upstream we're real close but they let us stay with them and and film them all this time and you know i i think that they kind of sensed our our intention that we weren't going to do them harm but i also think that they sensed that we're there to that we have good intentions. And I have a couple other stories for uh, members of the food chain that are not so big. But before I tell you those, I, I'd like to I'm just talk about George Shallow, who was a very well-known researcher of mountain gorillas. And most people are more familiar with Diane Fossey, who came after George. But he was the first person to study gorillas to be able to get incredibly close to them to observe their natural behavior all their interconnected relationships with each other and people asked him you know how were you able to do this and he said i didn't carry a gun and all the researchers before him had done that and he felt that the gorillas would You know they would sense that intention just by carrying a gun. The gorillas would sense that, and so and Diane also did the same thing. She didn't carry a gun and was able to get incredible, incredibly close to these gorillas. But just give you a few more examples of why I believe that they can sense such a good intent. I had an experience on a salmon stream a number of years ago, where there were a lot of salmon, you know, in the stream, but just the conditions of that year there was a pool a little bit upstream kind of off the main track of the main mm-hmm. river that a bunch of chum salmon were spawning and I've never seen them there before I've never seen them there since it was just a fluke that Richard and I were even there in the first place and, and saw this and so we decided to come back and film them only we brought you know GoPros and Put the cameras in the water and we could see some of the behavior from above, but it wasn't until I went back and reviewed all the GoPro footage that this whole story was revealed where there's this kind of a courtship dance between these the male and the female salmon that, that goes on hour after hour. It's beautiful, it's it's kind of a love story really with these salmon. And so I, when I was watching this footage, I thought, you know, I can't even believe we got this. It just felt like it was something that, that we shouldn't have been able to get, that the salmon, you know, would be afraid of those pros or our presence or something that, you know, how did we actually get this? And that film turned into, or the footage turned into a film called The Singing Planet, which was seen on social media all over the world. And it really struck a chord with people. And, you know, we got these comments like, oh, you yeah, know, and, you know, lots of comments and languages that I don't understand. And, you know, Arabic. And it was amazing. And, you know, again, I, I really feel like it's this salmon. You know, they sense our good intention. And that's what I'm going to tell you one more because this is the most improbable of all. So Richard and I were filming timber slugs. Lots of people know them as banana slugs. They're pretty big slugs. And they're important. It's an important story to tell because they are kind of, they eat up kind of sort of the waste on, in the forest, and they pass it through their bodies and turn on this really nutrient-dense material that then helps to fertilize the forest. Oh. And so we wanted to tell this story, and, we found a slug and he was on a leaf and we kind of moved him to a place where we thought we could film and he was very active and typically a slug like the minute you do anything with them you know they they close up and we had to move him to another place because the sound quality was terrible the campground people were packing up it was in the morning and I had to move to another place in you know, another part of the campground. We never could get quiet enough. And, but the whole time he's being active and curious and those little things are moving in. So then we said, well, we're going to have to get in the car and go somewhere because, you know, this is not happening. We're not going to be able to record his narration. So we put him in a box, you know, with the lid was open and everything, and and Richard's driving, and and I'm holding the box, and I'm watching him as we're speeding down the road, and the slug crawls up just to the edge of the flap, and he's looking forward, like out the windshield, <laughs> and. It stayed that way for the entire drive. And then we got to a trailhead. We had to hike several miles in to find this quiet place that was a typical environment for him and put him on a rock. And he performed magnificently. He moved around and did everything that he would normally do about his life without, you know, somebody picking him up and moving him like five miles away from his home. And, and, when it was all over, there's even one point where Richard's reading his, out of his book, The Island with Sandy, he wrote a passage about these slugs, and he's reading out to the slug, and the slug is looking at him while he's reading, you know, he's kind of reared up looking at the book. And we, we took him back when we were all finished, and, you know, to the very spot where we found them, so no, no slugs were harmed in the filming of this film. But I say this because this was really unusual behavior for, for slug. And it happened. And I, for me, it's just another example that these animals sense your good intentions.
1: Yeah, this is probably a moment where if people just pause, even to think of moments that their time with their dog felt very cognizant, and then you keep reaching for animals that were less and less well known to you there's some beautiful films right now my octopus teacher is pretty darn interesting in that light so we are mentioning a lot of things in this conversation books and films and so forth and i just want people to know that they all of this will be in the show notes my producer is taking really good notes and we'll make sure all the links that that liz and i are referring to are there so let us, in this in this idea of animals sense our intention, I'm sure scuba divers have experienced this as well. I know I'm a deep, deep, deep swimming snorkeler and I know I'll go down there and try and get a picture of this little blue fish for four hours and he escapes me <laughs> until I give up the camera and then they'll just come look me straight in the face. Most of us have some kind of a, a story that we can harken back to, to know what you're talking about. One step further though... Is you offered, and I don't want to get spooky here on folks, but is it a step further to think they can sense good attention? Just like really embrace it? There's plenty of, of stories in of nature like that too, where, where they a- almost advocate for themselves in the process of interacting with us.
0: Yeah, I really believe that just from my own experience, you know, that they sense our good intentions. And I've had times where. I needed a, a shot of a bear getting salmon on a particular strain that I was filming and the bear shows up, grabs the salmon and goes back in the woods, you know, like, it was almost like, a, you know, like I had rubbed a magic genie or something and, and it happened. And I've seen that, you know, just happen over and over again. And I, and I feel that, you know, along this lines of learning to listen to the animals that, that, we need to learn to listen to their stories, the stories that they're telling us all the time. And as a filmmaker, I, I really feel like these animals are helping me to tell the stories in a much deeper way than even what I might have envisioned.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I'd like you to comment on is this. There's a movement now, I wonder how you feel about it, called Slow Birding. So if you've ever had even the slightest interest in birds, yeah, you may remember that, you know, it feels like a lot to just go clamoring off into the woods following some bird sound with your giant binoculars around your neck and so forth and so Well, this slow birding movement is to just create moments when birds can come to you or you just simply listen for birds. And there's even a wonderful app on the Cornell Ornithology Department has created. I'll make sure that's in the show notes too for just listening and identifying birds, talk to us about this listening to nature and birding by ear, or just the wonder of this whole concept of listening. Are there bird things we should know that we aren't <laughs> even aware of? Like, what? I got to just, I just expand on that. You said that Richard once points out that birds fight their battles with songs.
0: Yes, There's a beautiful quote from one of his books that says, the great wisdom of birds is that they fight their battles with songs. And you may know that in the spring, when the mating season is happening, at at least for us here in in North America, the way the birds are declaring their territory to other birds and also attracting mates is by singing. (laughs) And it's really interesting, we have rushes, beautiful, incredible, ethereal songs to those thrushes. And we're lucky to have three different varieties of thrushes here, the different species. And the slants and thrushes will not only, you know, one bird will sing on one tree and then you'll hear another one in response and maybe a third one over here. But they will actually change the octave of their song. Between these birds, it's the same song, but it's a different octave. And, and you know, it's, it's just amazing. But learning to hear the voices and knowing who's making the voices or making the sounds, who's talking to you, is a pretty wonderful thing. Because even if you can't see the birds, and often you can't, you might be lucky to see the birds. But if you hear the voice, then you know they're saying hello to you. And that's a really wonderful thing. And it, it goes again to knowing who your neighbors are, you know, not just the human ones. That's such a
1: lovely concept, too. In our, in our times, it's easy to feel lonely. But when we know more, when we hear more, when we listen more, that it, it, everything seems more expansive. Tell me some folks who are doing more and more of this that you might know about. Are you aware of, we gave the example of the little parklets popping up here and there, but do you know some innovative things that are happening to make natural places more accessible, nearer, more cleverly restored? What's going on in, that, in this world? Well, one of,
0: the, one of the things that, and, you know, we had, talked about partnerships at one time like interesting partnerships and one of the things that came to mind is not partnerships between people but partnerships between humans and animals and i'm thinking especially of beavers who throughout throughout history you know we think of them as nature's engineers because they build dams which create ponds create wetlands and create amazing spaces for all kinds of plants and animals, but they have also been viewed as something to get rid of a pest because they're building these dams, not where we want them. And But there's been this sort of a movement to embrace beavers again. And I've heard the term beaver believers, where people are actually reintroducing beavers because of this work that they do. And it's interesting, I just read an article about a young rancher in Nevada whose father had spent his entire time being as a, the head of this ranch and blowing up beaver deals because he saw them as a pest. But with all the issues with water in the West, either not enough water or too much water at once. This young rancher has embraced beavers, and he said that in times of drought, the ponds that the beavers have created with their dams helped keep his cattle watered You know, in times of drought. And when there are times when there's just all this water that's coming at once, instead of just sort of flooding or making like a river in one part, because the beavers have created these dams, the water spreads out over the land and some of it's actually able to soak into the land versus just, you know, rushing forward and, and causing destruction. And so I just, I love this partnership between a human and these very hardworking beavers. You know, that expression, eager as a beaver. If you've ever seen beavers working, they are the most industrious animals on the planet and you know and they're working to help not only create their own environment that is for them but they're also creating a healthy environment for us
1: there's so much going on in the way in that way if people want to look up a term and see some great stories the new term it's probably not that new but it's newly rising through the zeitgeist is called rewilding (laughs) There's an amazing TED talk about rewilding. It was done a few years ago, but it was found that Yellowstone, that wolves changed the course of rivers in Yellowstone because of their impact on the environment in a positive way. Things were going way wrong when the predators were removed and no one knew how to fix it. But then when they restored the Keystone species... Everything returns as something that was better than anyone could imagine. So as far as giving people hope, I think that this is a direction that you're pointing to and countless others as well. So how about we take a break and when we come
2: back, we'll talk more about the wonder of nature and our singing planet. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange and host of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I want to share something wonderful with you today. So you know how the constant negativity in the news and social media seems to be at some sort of boiling point right now? It's relentless. It can feel like all the joy and potential is being drained out of our future. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that optimistic people have instant access to positive news. There are newsworthy stories out there about astounding solutions to some of the world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. It's not a lack of good news, it's a lack of awareness. So, if you want to try living with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, head over to goodness-exchange.com where you can balance your media diet and feed your curiosity about a world with real-life stories celebrating people solving the world's greatest problems. And second, you can become a Goodness Exchange member. And for just $2 a month, you can help us keep this site ad-free. And what you're going to get is high-quality carefully curated stories all about the good that's happening in our world and all of it sent directly to your inbox or via our beautiful app. In the face of all the negative noise and often discouraging things that happen in our personal lives, you'll be the one who can stay on your feet. You can point to possibility and be the person who makes opportunity of setbacks. People who use the goodness exchange have a spring in their step. Every day they radiate joy and confidence because they know far more about the complete picture of what's going on out there in the world. You can do more and be more in a positive way for your kids, your coworkers, your family, and all the people around you, because you're going to be filled with stories of goodness, remarkable ingenious solutions and progress. Super simple to open the door to a new landscape of possibility for yourself and others. Just get instant access to what's right with the world and leave all the negative noise behind. You can use it every day by heading straight over to goodness-exchange.com backslash join. And you can get 14 days on us when you sign up for this membership. Thanks so much. We hope you'll join us in making the world a better place. There is a conspiracy of goodness going on, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably part of it. Okay, so we're back.
1: We're here with Liz McKenzie, award-winning filmmaker, writer, and editor. She's an expert in giving others access to the wonder and the joy in nature all around us, and I do mean all around us, in the crack in the concrete, in a tiny piece of grass that may be in the corner of our yard unattended. So Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Let's continue our conversation about the wonder that's all around us. During our break, we were a chit-chatting a and My producer asked for more stories. Tell us some more stories of <laughs> moments in nature that kind of turned, you, turned your thought process upside down a
0: bit. Oh gosh, that's was- Every time I go out, there's something that changes my thought processes, honestly. But I just a couple of things that came to mind. I was filming a dragonfly on the edge of a salmon stream and feeling so lucky that I actually, you know, found this dragonfly and could get close enough to it and didn't fly away or anything. And and it's fluttering its wings. It was beautiful. And and as I'm filming. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a bank so that it goes down to the stream and I can't really see below the bank. And as I'm filming up close to this dragonfly, a bird comes up from below and eats the dragonfly. <laughs> you know, I mean I could like I film. That I was, I <laughs> was a very real moment there out in nature.
1: Very um, real moment.
0: The other thing that comes to mind, and and it's maybe it might seem like a really small thing, but to me. It kind of changed my whole world. I was out in my early days of living in Alaska. I was out with a birding expert who had come to town and to give a little workshop on birds. And we're out in this kind of woodsy area. We're all with our binoculars. And he's listening. You know, he can hear the birds. I could hear something. I didn't know who was making a noise. But of course, he knew what everything was. And so he could point out where these birds were. And... It was a little bit of a cool morning, and, but the birds were singing. It was in the spring, and we found, and I, I don't remember what kind of bird it was, but I could finally see him in my binoculars. And as he was singing, I could see his the throat moving. I could see the chest. I could see the heart pumping of this little bird and hearing this incredible song and actually seeing the mouth open and close as he was singing and because it was cool every time he opened his mouth there was a little little puff of steam that came out just like when we can see our breath and it was such a profound moment for me to hear this bird singing and see this happening you know right in front of me and it affected me so much that when we were filming for The Singing Planet and kind of thinking about, you know, what's the story here? What is it that we're trying to tell in this film? That I wanted to give that same experience to the viewers, if they could possibly see the bird's mouth moving as they were singing, see see the chest moving as they were breathing. That You know, I wanted to give that experience to the viewers of the film.
1: These are the kind of moments that we each sort of realize what we're built to create. If we aren't taking people on a journey, they won't be going on it. Like I, I have decided from the things that we do at the Goodness Exchange, interviewing and talking to person after person who is changing the world in some way for others, that almost all of us are uniquely built to contribute something. And that story right there, that moment where you allowed yourself to be moved by something that seemed so small is I think it's what most of us are looking for in this world. We're looking for these, these aha moments when we discover what really brings us alive.
0: Yeah, I so agree with that, Linda. And I think that's one of the, the beauties and the value of nature that maybe we don't think about, that when we have time to slow down a little bit, be in nature, however that is for us, whether it's a city park or a green strip or our own backyard or, or some big, wild, beautiful place that we have time to just be with ourselves, be immersed in all the beauty all of our senses are alive and we can hear that voice inside ourselves talking to us and helping us figure out what that thing is that we have to give and contribute and what brings us alive.
1: We are we referred to it earlier, but I don't think I think I want to make a bigger point of it than we did this movement towards mindfulness. Whenever that means to each person, it does mean being totally present in the moment. And there is almost nothing, nothing more accessible and simple than just sitting somewhere and listening, listening for the man-made sounds, listening for for natural sounds, listening to the own our own heartbeat. Sometimes I can I can hear my own heartbeat, and I'm not sure that's <laughs> in, in my ears. But in this day and age, it's easy to lose hope. So, talk to us about. I'm sure that you have things that just hit you broadside, like all of us in the news or what have you. Talk to us about not losing hope.
0: Well, I love this question. It's something that that I grappled with, especially when I, like a lot of us, was absolutely glued to the news every single day for the last number of years. And One thing that helped a lot was I was always searching for the good news, and coming across your podcast and your newsletter, and I especially loved the uh, what's it—the weekly, you know, start your week with something good. I just love that because I can read that on Mondays before I look at the news, and there's always amazing stories in there. And I'm thinking of one in particular. I think it was just in in this week's episode. It was about this. I think it's the world's largest shipping company, Containers. And they rerouted their shipping lanes to avoid the, I think, is it the blue whale? Let's see. Yeah. And other cetaceans, other whales and purposes and all that. They made an intentional decision to put those animals first. And that gives me hope when I see a big company like that making a real impact in another species, in the life of another species. That, I just, I love that. And it gives me hope. And there's stories like that, big stories and little stories all the time. But as you point out on your podcast, you know, we're bombarded with those big stories. And because we're all just sucked into that, there's this algorithm that keeps those stories at the forefront. And You know, we really have to look for these other stories, but they're there. And now when I read the news, thanks to you, (laughs) I get the headlines, you know, I want to stay informed, but I'll quickly start scrolling down to see, okay, where are the positive stories? Where are the stories that people are making a difference or done innovative things, not just for the natural world, but for the human part of our, our community? as well and that keeps me positive i will
1: i will tell you that things have changed there is a giant wave. when i started the goodness exchange in 2013 we figured out we had to look through about three or four hundred pieces of awful news to find one or two good ones to put in that monday newsletter For people who might be interested, if you go to the goodness exchange, -exchange goodness-exchange.com, you can sign up for our lending newsletter. And that's what Liz is referring to. It is extraordinary. It is. It's just, even though it's my team that's producing it almost every week, I've moved to send them some note about this (laughs) week's letter. I'll tell you, what I ask people these days is, as we all try and pull the plug on our negative news consumption, what you're saying, like our eyes being constantly drawn. To the doom and gloom, as we do that, you can't just tune it all out because where would our source for goodness and positive and signs of progress be? So, if you're doing that, if you're trying to extract yourself from the doom and gloom news cycle, there are places like the Goodness Exchange where you can make sure you got an influx of goodness and progress. And I think it's what you just said. It's. When you when that bad story does hit you and take you want to take you off your feet, you can stand your ground because of a more expanded version of reality that includes companies doing the right thing. More and more of them are popping up every day.
0: Well, absolutely, and I I've really my I think what gives me the most hope of all is the the sense that people are finally waking up individuals businesses corporations governments and we're seeing evidence of people making positive changes and saying no nope, we're not gonna have the we're gonna we're gonna change things and that inspires me and gives me a lot of hope yeah
1: and it's happening in the natural world people are waking up to what we can each contribute to the thriving of the natural world
0: absolutely and you know we had at one point in all our conversations, we had talked about this idea of, of I think it's called greenwashing.
1: Okay. Let's, yeah, because I would imagine there is a cynical person or two who is hearing us go on and on about the magic of big corporations finally getting a clue and that that's not always true. And there is a great, a great problem in this world called greenwashing. Do you want me to show people how we stumbled upon it and you and yeah. I have it right here? Yeah. So I was just chatting and doing a pre-call chat with Liz and I had the, I had a very, very important scientific magazine. I'm not going to throw them under the vest because I think they do great work, but I had this this scientific natural history kind of a magazine here. And I said, take this for example. There's an article all about healthy forests for a healthier you. And then I, I thought I was reading an article about healthy forests. And then it says how paper connects the world to nature. And when I look, it looks like an article, but really it's three-page advertisement for paper packaging. Uh, ARG. (laughs) This so talking about what you think about greenwashing and (laughs) what kind of salmon are we supposed to eat anyway? And all these important like we need some tools in our toolbox here.
0: Well, I actually had to look up greenwashing to see, you know, I want to make sure that, that I understood what it was. And I, there were definitions, especially by, you know, reputable business sites. And there was, there was one business news daily says that greenwashing is when a company purports to be environmentally conscious for marketing purposes, but actually isn't making any notable sustainability efforts. And I thought about, well, what, you know, why is this happening? And, Because people care so deeply about the environment, they're affected by climate change, and they want to know that their money and their votes are helping the environment versus hurting or or adding to the climate situation. And companies want to capitalize on that deep concern by their customers or shareholders. And I think I would say buyer beware. And I think the people coming up in the next generations that are younger than I am are, you know, they're pretty savvy and they want to make a difference in the world. And, and what I would like to see is a fundamental shift in how we as individuals, businesses, governments view everything in our world, you know, not just humans, but the other than human members of our global community. Not just as a resource for our benefit or or for profit, but as an integral, connected part of our living community. And I would say, if we consider all of it as part of our family. And so the stories that I think of for corporations that are doing some really interesting thing. There was the one for the container line that altered their shipping routes for the blue whales, you know, they're putting the whales first. Just recently in the news, the owners of Patagonia, it's valued at $3 million. And really, yes, yeah. yes, and they, $3 billion, and they designed a trust at a nonprofit organization that the profits of which are something like a hundred million dollars a year, and that's going to be directly devoted to combating climate change and um, product, protect undeveloped countries in the world. You know, and that these are this is like the opposite of, of greenwashing. And I recently saw another fantastic documentary by the National Geographic. And it, it actually came out in, in 2016 or 2017, but it's called Into the Canyon. And it follows a National Geographic photographer. And I think the other one's a, a writer for National Geographic. And they decided they're going to hike the entire Grand Canyon to highlight, you know, what's happening with the canyon and the beauty of it. And They're down in the canyon, which now there's no trails or anything. It's a really arduous undertaking. But at one point, they come up to the rim of the canyon because there's going to be a meeting with the Navajo Nation Council about this proposed project called the Escalade Project by developers who wanted to build a huge complex on the rim of the Grand Canyon on Navajo land and a tramway that would take people down into the canyon. And they estimated it would take about 10,000 people down into the canyon at the confluence of the Colorado River and the Little Colorado River. And this is a beautiful area where the Little Colorado River is actually, the water's a blue color because of sediments that are being washed out in, in the water. It's also an area that's sacred to the Navajo, the Hopi, Zuni, and other Native peoples. And there had been an earlier sort of agreement or proposal that the Navajo Council was going to go along with this development, but there were especially elders who lived in that area that were against it and were fighting and uh, for quite a few years. And so the National Geographic folks are there, they're filming this meeting, and there's discussion back and forth between the developers and those in a the council that are for this development and those who don't want it and The most touching thing was when one elder stood up and said to those in favor of the project, you have not consulted with the water people, you have not consulted with the wind people. It's not just the human people or the bank of but the wind and the water people, which are a really important tenet in Navajo understanding that these are elements of the world that provide guidance and instruction other than human elements. And uh, that's a very different viewpoint than what the developers were coming, where they were coming from. And uh, so there was a vote. And after six years of resistance by these local families, the Navajo Nation Council voted down the bill that would have paved the way for that so-called Escalade development. So just incredible. And then, so you have this government, you know, tribal government, these corporations that are, Really taking a much broader look at what's happening and saying, wait a minute, you know, this isn't all about profit. And on the other hand, we have the SpaceX a rocket test site in in Boca Chica, Texas. What they've applied for permitting to expand this site even bigger and. But the Fish and Wildlife Service has documented a marked reduction in several endangered species of birds, and and there are also the area around the SpaceX complex has some protected wildlands and. So it's not just the birds, but it's sensitive habitat for lots of other wildlife. And and so this expansion is in question, whether they're going to be able to get the permit or not. And, And I think my question is, if we look at these proposals, look at any sort of project that we're going to undertake. And... Take a viewpoint where we're listening to these other voices, not just the human ones, but the other than human voices. And is it worth losing a species or contributing to their loss or decline to test the SpaceX rockets? That's To me, that's really the essential question. And I'm not at all, against you know, SpaceX ex- exploration. I'm so excited about the James Webb telescope and all of that. But I also think we need to take care of our own backyard, and we need to be thinking about that and our decisions. And in Alaska, with our salmon, a lot of us feel really strongly that we should always put salmon first in all of our decisions in this state. they are a keystone species, I and mean, not only do they feed people, but they feed over 100 species of other animals. And even the forest along the streams, it's been documented that The salmon, the trees growing along salmon streams are actually bigger than ones that are not along salmon streams. It supports the fishermen and their families, the processors, the people who transport this food all over the world. And those of us who live here, we depend on that food for our life and and our ways of life. And so then there's the Pebble Mine, which is at the headwaters of... Crystal Bay and is a proposed mine. There's deposits of gold and copper. And of course, we need minerals, you know. But this is the largest sockeye salmon fishery in the world. And the EPA has said that, that the deposits from the Pebble Mine would result in unacceptable loss of salmon habitat right there, where the mine would be, and also downstream out into crystal bay and now i i think about well okay so you mine the copper and gold and once they're gone they're gone forever but we have this renewable economic powerhouse of salmon that are they're going to keep coming back and coming back as long as we take care of that habitat they will keep coming back and so that's that's the choice that that we're looking at and if we consider the whole big picture, you know what's what's the right decision? I know what it is for me. Well,
1: oh, I love this. I love this. Are we listening to the wind and the rocks? That yep. is just I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think I need to use my imagination on that. just a, it's a focal it's a focusing phrase that takes into account everything that you've mentioned that we have to consider before we literally trash something that can never be restored. So, okay, so tell me about a few more questions about your view of what's possible. Do you? How about a peak moment? Do you remember a peak moment when everything seemed to shift for you? I know you told <laughs> us a, a number of stories. A moment when something fundamentally changed and caused you to change the direction that you were headed.
0: Yeah, gosh. You know, I think for like a lot of us, we have a lot of a lot of moments like that. But I think if I was going to narrow it down to one, it would be moving to Alaska and meeting Richard Nelson, who, as I, I say, was a cultural anthropologist, a writer, hosted Encounters Radio Programme. Star of many of my films. And I learned a lot of things from him. But in the context of this conversation, I think one is that it's okay to be a nature geek. <laughs> okay. Which I've kind of always been. But, you know, especially when I was living in Miami, you know, you just kind of keep that to yourself. And I have always, since I, as long as I can remember, I've always had this feeling that everything in the natural world was as much my family as my own family, that there was this kinship with everything else in the world. You know, outside of my family, who I think nurtured that in me, I didn't know that anybody else really felt that way. And Richard, because of his work with cultural anthropology, he lived with people in villages, Native Alaskan villages, and really apprenticed himself to them versus studying. He came as a student and he introduced me to this indigenous understanding of the world that everything in our world, world, plants, animals, water, wind, mountains, that everything in our world has power and spirit and awareness. We're listening to the natural world. world, Well, the natural world is listening to us. And that has influenced the way I see the world and, and the work that I do. And I and I think it especially helped me to transition from a university job. Where I was an English professor, tenured and everything. Yeah.
1: Oh, oh, gosh, we didn't even start with how you got here, but that I did not know that about you.
0: Yeah. And I love teaching. I absolutely loved it. But it's I had started doing some filmmaking. I'm a writer also, so and I love, you know, nature's always been my first love. And at one point, I had an opportunity to make a series of films for the North Pacific Research Board about some research that they were were doing on the the Gulf of Alaska. And I just took this leap to filmmaking as a full-time job and, and writing also. And, but... Richard really helped me understand that that's really where my heart was, and maybe that's where I could contribute was to telling these stories in the natural world. And so it it's really influenced the way that I see the world and the work that I do. And this idea, of, you know, nature or having power and spirit and awareness. You know, it's been really interesting because. I've seen that so much in, in my work as a filmmaker on the way the animals seem to respond to my being there and the work that I'm doing. And even fish. I spent a lot of time on these beautiful little Arctic cod for another project that I was working on for some research up in the Arctic. And hundreds of hours along salmon streams with spawning salmon and salmon laying eggs and all that and dying. And... What I came away with is that it changes the way you, your relationship with another species, you know, and it, and it reinforces the idea that we all belong to each other, all of us, you know, and there's a kinship that we all share. So, of course, we need to take care of all the parts of our family
2: that is lovely
1: that's a beautiful thought to to close on when needs it happen to be able to take your work to the next level that of impact and so forth what's going on next liz
0: well thank you for asking that well i I'm continuing my work that that hopefully is showing all these amazing animals and plants where they live and revealing their stories and you know with the hope of opening hearts and minds and and ears and eyes so that people see that see them as something not just food or resource to be extracted or something to watch on TV or, or even to go out and enjoy ourselves that but as fundamentally important to our well-being and the well-being of the planet. And to continue that work is always having that financial support to do that. And so, you know, honestly, uh, an angel that would help me with that, that support would be fantastic. And another thing that I would love to team up with businesses and corporations and governments and politicians that truly want to shift their approach to the environment and not the greenwashing, but the ones who really want to make a difference and show them the singing planet, you know, and have conversations about what it means to consider these other voices on the planet and listen to these other voices and decide. How we're gonna act. This
1: is at the core of it. Every all the three conversations I've had, including this one with you, that's really what I came away with was listening for other voices and listening isn't going so well in our culture, even listening to each other. So, okay. So maybe if we've got to close our ears to each other, we can listen to the world around us a lot more effectively since listening to you talk about it. So what one change do you think would have the largest impact on the world right now is? I think
0: having this fundamental shift and how we relate to the other than human inhabitants of the, the world and how we relate to humans and I and by that, I mean humans that are different from us, they're part of nature as well, but how we relate to all the inhabitants of the world, you know, if we consider all of nature, rocks, birds, rivers, bears, and humans as our family, our kin, then how men do we behave? And I'm speaking of the endangered birds at that SpaceX site. You know, what if that was your grandmother, your father, your sister, or your child, or your own species? How then would you act?
1: This is the question. It's just an expansive, more, it's a way more expansive, potential-filled future for us if we zoom out. And then we can zoom in to whether we want the project. But zooming out and zooming in is definitely a short supply. And, you know, I would thank you for advocating for this exact mode of considering all our options over and over again. How can people connect with your work, Liz?
0: Well, there's uh, several websites that feature my work. For The Singing Planet, if you go to thewildchorus.org, there's all kinds of information about the film, how you can watch the film. And information about some of the critters that you'll see in the film and also about the the people who are in the film. And you can contact me through that website. You can also go to the encountersnorth.org website, which have lots of written material by me and also Richard. There's a number of our films are there and this podcast, he recorded over a 100 podcasts about the natural world, about indigenous knowledge of the natural world, and those are all there for listening. We're also podcasting those on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, Just Encounters and More. And then the other places is just my website, and that's lizmackenzie.org, and all of those places have contact information that will get you directly to me. I would love to hear from you. So please do contact me.
1: Well, we will have everything in the show notes that you just mentioned and everything else. So I, people may have noticed me looking down and writing. I've got all kinds of notes here. <laughs> so we will make this a really connection-rich article on a Wednesday coming up soon, probably mid-October at the Goodness Exchange. And join us there for more, all kinds of the hope and wonder that Liz and I are talking about. (laughs) We interview the most amazing people who are changing the world in extraordinary ways. Remember to to support all kinds of causes that you might come across, like Liz was mentioning. Get interested in what people are doing around you or halfway across the world because you can, your voice can make a difference. I think that's that's one of the things that Liz brought home to me in other conversations was that all of our interests count and that we can be counted. And it makes a difference in preserving what we've got now and enhancing things for the teacher. So thank you so much, Liz McKenzie. I hope all the connections to goodness and and progress that, that we mentioned carry you through your week and you start finding all the wonder that she and I have been talking about. Thanks.